Amen. Mark 1, and we're going to go uh, verses 1 to 15. God's word says this, the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, says this, I will send, a, send my messenger ahead of you who will, who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. At once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness for forty days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and angels attended to him. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. This is the word of the Lord. A recent scientific research has revealed that uh, the average attention span is getting shorter. Can anybody relate to this? I know I can relate to it. Uh, If I watch TV, it's likely that I'm going to have my phone, my iPad, my laptop, and then the TV screen. I have three screens in between. It's almost like a competition to see how many screens I can have in front of me because my attention spans so short that I got to have 15 different things going on at once. Uh, The 24-hour news cycle inundates us with news flash after news flash. Reporters clamor to get the story uh, to you first. We saw just a few weeks ago with the death of Kobe Bryant and and his daughter, news reporters willing to uh, mistake the truth, willing to put out false claims just to be the first one to be out there on the news. All of this relating, I think, to our short attention span. Uh, Twitter, for those of you who use Twitter, which is a social media app, only allows us to type in 280 characters at a time. That's letters or periods or commas, just 280. That's all I get in a post. And if, uh, I think if you're on Facebook, you see one of those long drawn out rants on Facebook from somebody, right, is upset because someone cut them off in traffic. I know I read the first couple words, but if that thing is three paragraphs, I don't have attention span long enough to get through it. Our attention spans are getting shorter. We're bound to keep on scrolling. Uh, Everybody likes a good action movie, right? Everybody likes a good action flick. Uh, We've seen the emergence of Marvel. Okay, Marvel puts out these uh, action hero movies. I hope I don't offend anybody here. Let's be honest, there's not much of a storyline in those movies. It's just tons of people being blown up, and they kind of connect 
15, 20, 100 of these movies together and you might be able to piece together the storyline as you travel through. I'm getting some evil eyes from my Marvel people in here. (laughs) Not a lot of storyline, tons of action in those movies, but we keep coming back for more. The highest grossing movies uh, in the theaters year after year are the Marvel movies. And it's the same story every single time. The same action hero story every single time. All because of our short attention span. But hear this. I think God's word obviously is fruitful for all ages. Fruitful for all time. And the beauty of Mark's gospel as we dive in, it is, it is specifically for people with short attention spans. Because as you read through this gospel, it's packed with both storyline and action. We get to meet our Savior, the suffering servant, as he makes his way to the cross. And these little action-packed little bursts of truth. I love Mark's gospel because it's straight and to the point. And Mark's just on it. He's explaining things. It has both storyline. It's loaded with action. Uh, The author of Mark's gospel is John Mark. Uh, John Mark was likely guided by the Apostle Peter. So we have Peter's account of Jesus here in the Gospel of Mark. The beautiful thing, too, about Mark's Gospel, if we recall a little bit of the history of John Mark, uh, John Mark was going along with a man named Paul and Barnabas. They were on mission together. And John Mark kind of got scared and fled the mission field. And... We see Barnabas and Paul split later on because Paul didn't really want to take John Mark back. He was upset with John Mark. But who took him, right? Barnabas took him out on the mission field. And then eventually we see them reunited. We see gospel unity. And the beautiful thing is that God, once again, uses a coward, someone who fled the mission field out of fear, to bring glory to himself. That should provide us... Incredible encouragement. It's thought that John Mark was writing to Roman Christians. Uh, That's kind of the context of where we're at. So we see John Mark, first-hand account of Peter, brought into the pages here, uh, written to encourage the Roman Christians. So we always want to be thinking of it uh, in that light. But the bottom line is this. When we read the Gospel of Mark, Mark doesn't beat around the bush. He just comes straight out with the facts Brings straight out the storyline and presents Jesus and his work. And so we know from the very beginning, from verse 1, something new is coming. Something new is coming. That something new is this, the good news. It's our first point this morning. It's the good news. How do we know this? Because Mark says so. Mark 1.1 says it's the beginning of what? The good news. Some of your translations will say the gospel. The beginning of the good news about who? Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Mark doesn't go through a genealogy. Mark doesn't begin like John does with this word picture connecting Christ back to the creation. Mark comes straight out and he says, The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. Bam, there it is. Mark again, straight and to the point. Something new has come. The fulfillment of all that Scripture has pointed to has arrived. 
Again, some translations will say gospel. Gospel means good news. They're interchangeable. Here's kind of a fun fact for you this morning. In, in the Roman Empire, heralds, when, when the Roman Empire conquered a new people, heralds would be sent out into the empire to proclaim gospel, good news. And what was their gospel that they would proclaim? They would proclaim, the Romans have conquered and enslaved another people. Or they would say, it's the emperor's birthday, let's all celebrate and worship him. That was the good news that they would proclaim. I mean, isn't that incredible news? If you're sitting there, you're one of these, these people that's been conquered by the Romans, you've basically been enslaved, and then the heralds would come in and say, hey, they've added another set of people to be enslaved under our empire. Great news, right? No. You see, Mark brings forth the real good news. The good news of who Jesus is and what he has done. That's what the gospel is. It's the good news of who Jesus is and what he has done. The word gospel transformed by the work of Christ. The very gospel that would go out, people would go out and say, hey, the Romans have conquered another people. Christians take this term and say, no, we have the real gospel. We have the real good news. Let me tell you about Jesus Christ. Let me tell you about what he has done. And so we see again Mark from the very beginning talking to Roman Christians saying the beginning of what? The beginning of the good news. It's not that another people have been enslaved by Rome. We have true good news that the conquering king that will free us from the chains of sin has come in Jesus Christ. Mark brings forth the real good news. Christians are trans- have transformed this word for their purpose. They have the real good news, not enslavement of another people under tyrannical government, but rather freedom from the enslavement of sin and its effects. And to usher in this new thing, there was a forerunner to Jesus that we read about this morning, which brings us to our second point, the forerunner. The forerunner's name is John the Baptist. We're going to read about him in Mark 1, 2 to 8. If you look in your Bibles, it says this. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, just pause there for a second. Not all of these words are in Isaiah. Uh, Isaiah is the prominent passage that's going to be read here. There's words from Malachi also and one of the other prophets. But when they were writing, they would acknowledge uh, the greatest work out of those, the biggest one, the, the one that's most quoted in that. So if you go back and read this, you'll see that there's parts of Malachi involved in this uh, proclamation also. So again, God's word says this, as it is written in Isaiah, the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Mark is introducing John the Baptist, and it says, And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. Just kind of your normal guy, right? And this was his message. 
After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Anybody ever been nice and cozy and warm and then had a glass of cold water thrown in your face? That's what John's like when he comes on the scene. He's the shock of cold water in the face. This is what the Jews were facing with John the Baptist, and yet they came in droves. It says, all of them came out of the Judean countryside and went down to hear what John was saying. You see, the Jews had anticipated that something was happening. That's what, when we get into the history of what's going on in the Roman Empire and Jerusalem, the Jews were anticipating something is coming. We see each one of the groups uh, within the Jewish culture, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes, the Zealots, all were preparing for the kingdom in different ways. All anticipating that something was coming, something was happening. God was at work, but they just didn't know how it was all going to work out just yet. The Jewish culture had heightened messianic expectations. They were all looking for the kingdom. And it's unexpectedly being pronounced by a guy, here this, wearing camel's hair and eating insects, right? I mean, who's clamoring to come out of the hills of Kentucky and go down in the creek and be baptized by someone wearing camel's hair and eating insects? Strange. But we know that the Jewish people were expecting something, and so they were listening and hearing. John is a fulfillment of prophecy. He is the Elijah that was prophesied that would come before the Messiah had arrived. We see that in uh, the proclamation from Isaiah. He's the last prophet before the arrival of the king. Who was the king? Jesus. John the Baptist with his message of repentance. He was calling people to repentance. Now we use that word a lot in church. Maybe some of you don't know what that means. Repentance literally means to turn and go the other way. I'm heading this way. If I'm repenting, I'm doing a 180 and I'm turning and I'm going. John was calling them to turn the other way. Stop going the way that you're going. Repent and turn around and come back. Clean yourself up. That's why they were coming in droves to be purified, to be baptized with water. It was a sign of purity. I know I've worked uh, 15 years in retail management. Who here has worked in retail before? Raise your hand. Okay, I want you to think through. I think we've all gone through this drill before. The regional manager drill or the CEOs coming to town. You guys know what I'm talking about? So I'm in store management. I worked for Big Lots a few years before I got uh, in the ministry. And I can recall my district manager... He was kind of a spazzy guy, and he, he came in, and he's freaking out because the regional manager's coming to town, right? And so what do we do? We start cleaning things up. We order a storage container in the back to hide all the stuff, to put it away. We're purifying the store, right, for the arrival of the regional manager is coming. You better start cleaning stuff up. You better get it right. You better actually work according to the company standards and company plans because you're going to be critiqued as 
the regional manager comes through. I think it's a great illustration for what John's... John's like, hey, you got to repent. you got to change. The Messiah's coming. The King's coming. I think we all can relate to this in our jobs, right? When the boss comes in, all of a sudden the... Okay, the Amazon is off, down, I'm back on my email. Hey, how you doing, boss? We're about the boss's business. And John the Baptist is doing this. He's calling people desperately, repent, turn away from your sin. The King is coming. The Messiah is coming. Come and be baptized. Come and be purified. Then we come to an interesting point in the story. Jesus arrives. Jesus arrives. And I don't know about you, but I ask myself this question as I read through this. Why is Jesus baptized? Why is Jesus tempted? If baptism is a sign of repentance, turning from sin, and looking to God, why would... Why would Jesus need to be baptized? Let's read real quick so we can refresh our memories of where we're at in the story. Mark 1, 9 to 13. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven saying, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. At once the Spirit sent him out in the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and angels attended to him. Why is Jesus baptized and tempted? Number one, out of submission. Submission. You see, let's be clear. Jesus never sinned. Jesus never sinned. His baptism isn't a baptism of repentance. It's a baptism of submission. Why does he need to be baptized? He has no sin. Jesus is literally the right way. He embodies goodness. He embodies the right. He is everything. He is morally perfect. He perfectly has fulfilled God's law. But we gain a clue from Matthew's gospel. Matthew uh, 3.15. Here's the context. Matthew gives us a little bit more detail. Jesus arrives on the scene, and John doesn't really want to baptize him, right? John realizes he's the Messiah, and he's like, no, you need to baptize me. And Jesus says this to John. He says, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this, what? To fulfill all righteousness. Jesus is submitting to the will of his Father. He's perfectly fulfilling what God has called him to. His baptism conveys also a dependence on the Holy Spirit. An action that he's modeling for those who are called to be uh, his followers. Jesus depended on the Spirit too. It says after this that he was led into the wilderness by who? The Spirit. The will of God the Father is the plan. 
Jesus is submitting to his plan. We'll see this later when, when Jesus begs God, the Father, he says, take this cup from me when he's faced with death. What? But not my will be done, your will be done. Submitting to the Father, the plan of the Father. Jesus is identifying with those he came to save. We see that in baptism. He's identifying with people, with sinners. Just as the first Adam, just as the first Adam represented humanity in his willful disobedience of God's command, that sin that Adam committed back in Genesis has been passed along. It's the original sin that we all have inherited. Don't get too prideful and say, man, I wish I could go back and make that decision because you would have made the same decision that Adam did. Adam represented humanity in his willful disobedience of God's command. So listen to this. Jesus represents his people in his willful obedience. He obeyed his perfect obedience to God's plan of redemption. Therefore, he was baptized and tempted to be in alignment with his people. He had to do everything perfectly to reconcile sinners. Why else was Jesus baptized and tempted? Number two, alignment. Alignment. At once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being Tempted, some of your translations will say tested, tempted by Satan. You see, Jesus is doing everything right, everything perfect. He not only is aligned with humanity through baptism, identifying with sinners, but also in being literally tempted by Satan in much the same way as who? Who else was tempted by Satan? Adam and Eve. Mark doesn't offer as much detail on the wilderness temptation of Christ as the other Gospels. But we gain understanding that Christ was tempted by Satan just as Adam was tempted. But instead of succumbing to the test, Jesus overcomes the test. Perfect alignment once again with the will of God. Perfect obedience. We witness here in Mark's Gospel... Pictures of the tests that Israel had failed. In the wilderness, right? You see that word? In the wilderness. When Israel was in the wilderness, they questioned God and His goodness after they were delivered. They were slaves in Egypt and God delivered them and they're in the wilderness and what happens? They question God. They don't obey God. They question His goodness. Jesus in the wilderness, tempted by Satan, what? Perfect obedience. Perfect obedience. He doesn't question God, but he obeys the will of the Father. He doesn't submit to the temptation, but he overcomes temptation. Sinless. Looking back at his baptism, a picture of purity and repentance Similar to the earth being cleansed of sin during the great flood. You guys remember the flood account in the Old Testament? Noah 
came out alive through the floodwaters. Through the floodwaters. The floodwaters cleansed the earth. The earth was, people were sinful beyond belief. And God sent the flood to cleanse the earth. Noah and his family survives by building an ark because they are obedient to God. And they come through those waters just as Jesus comes out of the water. Just as Moses, transitioning to Moses now, Moses was used by God, what? To part the Red Sea and deliver the Israelites from the clutches of Egypt. What? Through the water. All types and shadows of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the greater Noah. Jesus is the greater Moses. Jesus is the perfect Israel of God. And he's aligning himself with sinful humanity and what will be a life lived in perfect obedience, a life that will go to the cross sacrificially, and a life that will be raised from the dead to deliver those who he will call. Jesus does everything perfectly, perfectly obedient. The author of Hebrews says this, if you look to your notes. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one what, who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. What does the next word say? Yet he did not sin. Perfect. Church, hear this. God understands you. He understands your frustration. He understands your hunger. He understands your thirst. He understands your betrayal. He understands your grief and the loss of a loved one. He understands your stress. He understands your pain. He understands everything. Isn't that amazing? The God that we worship, unlike the gods that are set before in every other world religion, can relate exactly to what you have gone through. He aligned himself with you to save you. He gets it. We don't have a God that is distant, but a God that has walked the face of the earth in human flesh. It's absolutely amazing. He willingly humbled himself by coming and taking on flesh to live on your behalf. If you don't walk away with anything else this morning, I want you to hear this. Jesus loves you so much. Jesus loves you. That he was willing to do that for you. To humble himself. He did it for you. He did it to bring himself glory. He didn't simply provide the law, but he became the fulfillment of of the very law that condemned us in order that we might be saved. And you know who gets the glory out of that? God does. That's what this is all about. God being glorified. That we can look at the cross of Christ and we can say, Hallelujah, Jesus, we love you. We glorify you. We praise Him. So often we want to make the gospel about ourselves, but it's all about Jesus. It's all about God being glorified. 
In Adam, we die because of sin. In Jesus, what? We live because of his perfect righteousness. The Bible says not one stroke of the pen of the letters in Scripture will go unfulfilled by Jesus Christ. Everything fulfilled through Jesus. It's good news. He did it all for you. Everything. He laid down his life for you. Rest in his mercy and grace this morning. If you have turmoil in your life, if you're frustrated, if you're hurt, if you're grieving, Jesus understands exactly what you have gone through. He identifies with you. He has saved you. Rest in his mercy and grace. Someone needs to hear that today. Rest in what Christ has done. Glorify his name in that. Be encouraged. Be encouraged from the alignment that Jesus has with us. If we can have confidence and encouragement in a Savior that can identify with everything that you and I have experienced in life. Everything. He understands. He gets it. There's nothing that you're going through that Jesus can't say, I've been there, I've done that. The only thing he can't say that he's done is sin. He didn't sin. Why else was Jesus baptized? Number three, inauguration. Inaugurating. Inauguration. Mark 1, 10 to 11 says this, Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, says this, He saw heaven being torn open, and the Spirit descending on him like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, saying, You are my Son, whom I love, with you I am well pleased. Jesus is inaugurating. What is inaugurating? Something new is coming. It's the beginning. The ministry of the Savior is beginning. That's the importance of Jesus' baptism. He's saying, I'm here. The forerunner came. John the Baptist came, declaring repentance. And then Jesus is baptized, and the ministry has now begun. The Son of God is here. He's also inaugurating the kingdom of God. Verse 15 says, The kingdom of God has come near. Some translations will say, The kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus is beginning this. He's inaugurating it. Three signs of the inauguration of the kingdom are found in the baptism of Jesus if we look to verses 10 and 11. It says, just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, what? He saw heaven being torn open. The heavens being opened up. Okay, we see another sign. The Spirit descending on him like a dove. And then a voice from heaven, the voice of God. Saying, you are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. What are the three signs that, that the kingdom is, is here, is evident, is at hand? Heaven is opened. It's a fulfillment of prophecy. Scripture speaks of this as a sign of the kingdom. Heaven being opened. 
Uh, The Spirit being poured out is a sign of the kingdom. Here it's poured out on Jesus. We know the ending to the story. At the end of his earthly ministry, it's going to be poured out on his followers. And it's still being poured out on us. We got to witness, I think about a month ago, someone come forward and confess Christ and be saved. The Spirit was poured out on them. Christian, hear this. You have the Spirit of God living inside you. You are filled with the Holy Spirit. And lastly, we hear God speak in this passage. God speaks. The heavenly voice speaks about Jesus. It says, He is the Son of God, and God's great pleasure in His Son is voiced. The ministry of Christ is here, and the kingdom of God is at hand. The heavens are opened, the Spirit poured out, the voice of God declaring, Something new is coming. The good news is here. The gospel has arrived. God is here to reconcile sinners to Himself. To bring Him glory. So what do we do? Jesus tells us. Read Mark 1, 14 to 15. It says, After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. And He says this, The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. And he tells us to do something. Repent and believe what? The good news. Repent and believe the gospel. Repent and believe what I'm about to do. So what's our response? Easy. Jesus told us. Number one, repent. Repent. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent. Mark 1.15a. We defined this term earlier, repent. Turn away, turn away from a self-seeking life and seek after God's ways. Turn away from a self-seeking life and seek God's ways. Follow after Christ. And church, repentance isn't just a one-time action. We continually repent because here's the thing. We're still sinners. We're reconciled by Jesus. We're covered by his blood. We're fully righteous in the eyes of God. When he looks at us, he sees the righteousness of Christ through faith. And yet, unless I'm the only one here, we still sin. We still mess up. I've never met one person in my life that falls into holiness. But I met a Every other person in my life falls into sin. If we're not continually living a life of repentance, of turning, I gotta turn, I gotta turn, I gotta look at my heart, I have to inspect my ways. Because they're constantly looking to myself for satisfaction. God has called me to a different way, He's called me to turn from that, to seek His ways. To seek his kingdom. We're constantly battling our flesh, 
our desires, our selfishness, and seeking after the kingdom of God. Walking constantly in His light. And Jesus, every sin you commit, past, present, future, forgiven at the cross of Christ. Through faith in His work. Should provide us incredible rest in what He has done and what He has accomplished, but it should stir up within us a response. God, because you have been so good to me, because you have loved me, because you have humbled yourself and come and walked where I walked, and because you have saved me, God, I'll do anything you want me to do. I will love people that are unlovable. I will spend time with people that I normally wouldn't spend time with. God, I'm going to love you by going and loving other people. We're no longer self-seeking. We're seeking God's ways. We're learning about God by desiring to read His Scripture. It's a mark of repentance that I want to know more about God. I want to know more about what He wants me to do and how He wants me to live. That was for the Christian in the room. If you're not a believer, if you're a skeptic, there's an urgency to the message of John the Baptist as he's calling people down into the wilderness to come and be baptized. He's saying, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. This isn't like it used to be. The Savior has come And we don't know when he's coming back. We're to be ready. And if you're not in Christ in the room, you're in trouble. I know we don't like to preach, you know, hellfire and brimstone, but hear this. It's the most loving thing I could say to you. If you're not in Christ, you're destined for the wrath of God. I don't know exactly what that is, but I know I don't want to be under the wrath of God. And yet Jesus is very clear. He calls you, repent and believe. Place your faith and trust in me. I've done it for you. Follow me. Turn from yourself. Follow me. Skeptic, this morning I'm calling out to you. I'm crying out to you. Place your faith and trust in the ministry of Christ, the work of Christ. He will transform your life. His Holy Spirit will come upon you. You'll never be the same. Repent. Number two, what else does he tell us to do? Tells us to believe. Believe. The last part of Mark 1.15. Believe the good news. Believe the good news. Believe in Jesus Christ. Witness what God is doing through people that are truly transformed by the power of the Spirit and the work of Christ on the cross. The good news is this. The world system is dark. It's sinful. It's self-centered. It doesn't care about you. Did you hear me? The world doesn't care about you. Jesus loves you. There's one thing I learned when I worked in retail. 
I could see the world system playing out right before my eyes because we'd do something amazing on Monday, but then Tuesday came around and my boss would call me up and it'd be like, hey, what are you going to do for me today? Because I don't really care what you did for me yesterday. What'd you do for me today? That's the world system. But God loves you to deliver you out of that. It's not the way God operates. God operates this way. Done. It's already done for you through the work of Christ. Available for you. Believe in Jesus Christ. The world system is dark and sinful, self-centered. It doesn't care, but Jesus loves you. In spite of your sin, Jesus came. He humbled himself. He left heaven. He took on flesh. He lived perfectly to reconcile the creation that we destroyed through our sin. He is the Redeemer. And if you are in Christ, He has redeemed you. If you are not in Christ, you are still under the wrath of God. And I call out to you this morning to repent and believe in the good news of Jesus Christ. Place your faith and trust in Him. Follow Christ. Christian, I call out to you constantly. Repent and believe. Repent and believe. It's what we do each and every week when we come to the table. We're constantly being reminded of the sacrifice of Christ, not to weigh us down, but to give us incredible freedom. It's so freeing. 